0: Now I've got a bit of a provocative opening question for you. Is the Queen a minister of God or a monster of the devil? That's an opening question for you, isn't it? Is the Queen a minister of God or a monster of the devil? What I mean by that is, is Her Majesty's government down in Westminster an agent for good or is it an agent for evil? Is the government a friend or a foe to Christians? Well before us this morning we have one of the most government friendly passages if you like in the Bible. Paul in the letters to the Romans has been telling them how to interact with the world around them and now he's got to that tricky subject of the state. I say it's tricky because historically this has been a really hotly debated issue. It's one persecuted Christians uh, used to, to, to fight over and persecute each other over during the Reformation 500 years ago. But it's also one that's literally split churches up and down the country just in this past year as we've been working out how to engage with what the government is asking us to do. And part of the trouble is that actually in scripture we find both pictures. We find the picture of a minister and a monster. There's Romans 13 here which speaks of the state as being a minister of God, instituted by God for our good. And then there's chapters like Revelation 13, which speaks of the state as a horrible monster that persecutes Christians and works on behalf of the devil. And we need to settle this a little bit before we come to this passage, otherwise we're going to get very confused as we go through. And if we start misapplying this, some people have called this passage a, a tyrant charter, one that sort of allows tyrannical governments to do what they want. Is that what we've got before us? We need to work it out, don't we? And today you'll find believers who gravitate towards one view or the other. There are those who isolate themselves entirely from the state, no interaction, no voting, no recognition of its authority. Government is bad, stay away from government. And then you'll find those who are only interested in government. The gospel is left behind as they focus on getting certain people in power or as getting people to vote a certain way. The church becomes a vehicle for political parties and their programmes, rather than for God and his programme. Now both of those ones are caricatures, aren't they? But groups like this have existed and, and do still exist. Part of the issue is the time and place that you live in, isn't it really? If you lived in first century Rome under Nero, when he was burning Christians like candles, you're probably more likely to view the state as a monster, aren't you, if that's when you live. If you lived in Victorian England, where the state was bringing in reforms in prisons, outlawing slavery, sponsoring missionaries, then you're probably more likely to view the state as a minister, a force for good. We can see why both extremes exist due to geography and history. But there is also one other factor, which might seem a little bit strange at first, but bear with me. The other one is an area of theology. Now each of us has our own theology, our own understanding of God. And theology, if you like, is a bit like an engine in a car. I don't know much about cars, but I know that they have an engine, and there's all these different parts, and they all work together. And if you make a change to one bit, if you loosen the valve in one place, it doesn't just affect that one part of the engine. It affects the whole thing. And it's like that with our theology. We've got our doctrine of sin over here and our doctrine of the Holy Spirit over there, but they affect each other. We can't just tweak one and expect it not to affect anything else. And the one that, if you tweet, sort of affects this issue of government um, is the doctrine of last things, the doctrine of end times. What you think is going to happen at the end of the world? Again, some groups think that everything is going to get worse and worse and worse before Jesus gets back. And they think that the government, therefore, is not a good thing because actually that's going to turn into something really bad. Other groups think that everything will get better and better and better before Jesus returns, that the government will spread peace and love. That was an especially popular view during Victorian times, interestingly enough. I bet those guys love this passage because it sort of teaches that kind of thing, doesn't it? But they would view the government positively. Now there is a third view, which is the one I hold. I know we hold different positions on this. But I think some things will get worse and some things will get better. I think history goes around in big circles in lots of ways. And I believe that Jesus could come back today without the need for a global revival or a one-world government. I believe the state is both minister and monster, and I believe that that's always been so. It's always had those two traits. And I believe it's like that wherever you live in the world, and whatever party is in power. It doesn't change from one to the other depending on who's in government. It just varies over time. So if that's true, then Paul here is also writing to people whose government is both minister and monster. Indeed, he's actually writing in the early days of Nero. Nero hasn't got to his worst here, but he is starting out. Now this sermon is on Romans 13, not Revelation 13, so it'll sound a bit like Romans 13. It'll be understood in the light of other passages, but the focus this morning will be the church as minister. If you want the church as monster entirely, then we'll have to wait until we do a series on Revelation, um, which might be some time. (laughs) I'll see how it goes. So after that long introduction, our points will be a bit briefer, but what does our passage have to say to us then? Well, first of all, it teaches us submission. Submission. Now, monster people are having kittens at this point. The idea of submitting to the government and you know, if it's going to be so awful. But the passage here teaches us to submit to earthly authorities. So if you have a look at verse 1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. What it's saying here is that our default position should basically be to obey them, to do what they say. And this fits with what we've been seeing in our section in Romans, doesn't it? It's about our life as living sacrifices in view of God's wonderful mercy towards us, caring for our enemies, standing with our brothers and sisters, laying down our lives in service to him. Well, this bit is no different, is it? It's not always fair. It's not always glamorous. But being a sacrifice isn't, is it? That's part of what we do. So our default position is to do what the state says. And not just the guys down in London either, local councils are earthly authorities. I should say Richard, who's a local councillor, did not ask me to say that. But that is true, local councils are an earthly authority. Policemen and women are earthly authorities. Traffic wardens are earthly authorities. You see, this gets very nitty gritty, it gets very practical, doesn't it? Now, I know many of you are thinking, but what about this? What about this exception? What about this exception? What about this situation? Do we submit then? Well, we'll come to those in in due course, but the norm, the normal situation is compliance, is submission. And this is not just a one-off passage either. It's throughout the New Testament. Not only does Paul say it twice in our passage in verses one and verse five, he says it in Titus as well. Peter says it in 1 Peter, and Jesus says much the same in the Gospels. Jesus taught the same thing when he was asked about taxation. He said in Mark 12, which you'll find on the back of your notice sheets, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The norm is compliance, is submission. And our passage gives us four reasons why that's the norm. The first reason is that earthly authorities are instituted by a sovereign God. Earthly authorities are instituted by a sovereign God. Let me read to you the second half of verse one and verse two. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The Bible teaches that God is in control of the world. That the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He wills. That's what He says in Daniel. When Jesus is on trial with Pilate, He says to him, you would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given you from above. That's in John 19. The ultimate authority is God, but He's given authority to earthly kingdoms and nations. So to rebel against them in real terms is to rebel against God. And again, now you've got a million caveats going through your head, haven't you? And get outs. But notice that Paul gives us none here. He wants us to see that this is important. Under normal circumstances, when you break the law of the land, you set yourselves against God. That's what he's saying. And that means although we have freedom in Christ to do certain things, Yet our freedoms can be or might be legitimately curtailed by the state. Let me give you an example. There's nothing in the Bible about speed limits on roads, okay? And in some countries, they're set one way, certain set of speeds. In other countries, they're set another way. They're fairly arbitrary. On some German motorways, there are no speed limits. But whatever we think of them, whether we think they're too fast or whether we think they're too slow, I know people fall in both camps, we're to submit to the state and keep them. You see, we're free in Christ to do whatever speed the state allows. But we're not free to do more than that. The state can legitimately curtail our, some of our freedoms. And the fact that we keep them is part of our offering ourselves as living sacrifices to God. So Paul writes that this is our moral responsibility to be subject to the law of the land. And in nearly every case, that is correct. I remember reading a few years ago about someone who disagreed uh, with this, about a preacher in South Wales. We've we've had some positive Welsh stuff. Let's have some, well not negative, but but I remember reading about a preacher in South Wales who regularly preached in little villages in the valleys. And he was caught driving his motorcycle. I can only imagine this little Welsh guy with a motorcycle. Um, driving his motorcycle without insurance and when the police stopped him he tried to argue that he didn't need to pay for insurance because when he was driving between the churches he was protected by the Lord he was doing the Lord's work so he didn't need to have legal insurance that's a true story now I do believe that God did protect him on his journeys on the valleys but I also believe that he needed to have legal insurance as well However big his faith, because the law of the land says it. And the law of the land is instituted by God because he instituted the state. But why does God do that? Why does he pass this on to states? Well, he gives us our second reason to obey. Earthly authorities punish evil and reward good. Earthly authorities punish evil and reward good. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's servant, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We said a couple of weeks ago that we're not to take justice into our own hands because God has not qualified individuals to do justice. What he has qualified is earthly authorities. Earthly authorities are there to bring temporal, this world, justice, to people who would do evil. And again, on the whole, this is right, isn't it? Generally speaking, the laws of nearly every nation in the world roughly line up with right and wrong, good and evil. If you steal something, you'll be punished. If you kill someone, you'll be punished. If you hurt someone, you'll be punished. Now again, we immediately jump to the exceptions, but they are, on the whole, exceptions. Most things you can get put in prison for today, or fined for, are things that we would all agree are wrong. Far more Christians, certainly in the West, get put in prison for fraud, sexual misconduct, perjury, and dodgy dealings than get put in prison for preaching the gospel or teaching something controversial from the Bible. And it's right that if they're doing those things, fraud and stealing, and it's right that they get punished. That's actually the state doing its job. Unless it's trumped up charges. Uh, Then it's not right, is it? But in most cases, the state is doing the right thing. So what it's saying here is, if you're cheating on your tax return, if you're beating your wife or husband, then you should be afraid of the state. Not because it's a monster sent by Satan, but precisely because it's a minister, a servant sent by God to do his justice. The state has been given a sword. It can administer punishment. Now that phrase, bearing the sword, has been hotly debated over the years. What implications does it have for the death penalty? What implications does it have about warfare in response to aggression? And I think this morning I'm going to leave it between you and your conscience. But I think it's fair to say that both sides have an argument there. Sidney Key, if you notice his picture, is in the window now. Who founded this church back in 1916. Would probably hate me for saying that because he was a pacifist and a conscientious objector and that was one of the reasons he actually founded the church. But I think it's not quite a clear-cut issue. And we have to learn to love one another, even in the face of disagreements over issues like that. So that's the second reason, because they generally punish good, uh, no, punish bad (laughs) and uh, reward good. The third reason we're to submit to earthly authorities is conscience. Have a look at verses five and six. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. What it's saying here is that we're not just to submit to the state to avoid punishment. We're not to be those who uh, submit to the state just when they're watching. We submit to the state because we believe it's the right thing to do. And if you think about it, that should change our attitude to submitting to the state. It's not about not getting caught It's not about not trying to move out of the way of those CCTV cameras so they can't see what you're doing. Actually, if we want to be submitting to the state, we want to be model citizens, don't we? Not just when they're watching, but all the time. So let's give a local council example. We won't litter, even if we know no one's watching. Not because it's about avoiding wrath and the fine, but because it's about doing what's right. There should be a sense in which earthly authorities want more Christians, because we're not the awkward, difficult ones, but the ones who are working for good, the ones who pay our taxes, verse 6, the ones who aren't subversive and always out to try and bend the rules, the ones who serve in government offices with integrity, the ones who do what's right. And that will only make it more powerful if we are those people when we have to say no, If we're people who are saying no all the time and being awkward, that won't be powerful. But if we are the people who are submitting and serving in the right way, then when we do say no, that's really going to send a message. More of that in a minute. The final reason we're to submit to earthly authorities is there in verse seven. We owe it to them. So verse seven, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honour, to whom honour is owed. We owe it to them. That's one of the reasons why we obey our earthly authorities. He lists off four things there that we owe to people in authority. Basically, in, in sort of modern English, direct taxes, indirect taxes, respect, which is literally fear, and honour. Now, that doesn't mean that we're lapdogs and bootlickers, But it does mean that we need to think about how we speak about those in authority. Do we pay them their due honour and respect? Now, I know what some of you are thinking, well, the ones we've got, they're not worth any honour or respect. But we need to be careful that our cynicism doesn't lead us to ignore God's command here. Do you think the leaders in Paul's day were really any better? So, we are to submit under normal circumstances, and Paul has laid out why. But I know what most of you are all thinking about. You're thinking about the exceptions. That's our second point. The exceptions. There are some very famous examples in scripture where believers have refused to submit to earthly authorities. So, in the Old Testament, you've got Daniel who refuses to stop praying. You've got Daniel's friends who refuse to bow down and worship a statue. In the New Testament, You've got Peter and John who refuse to stop preaching even though they're told to by the authorities. Very famously, they answer in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. Now, if Romans 13 is a tyrant's charter, then this verse is a rebel's charter, isn't it? It's been used to justify no end of violence, civil wars, revolts, and revolutions. We can get it wrong both ways, can't we? Action and inaction. So what is going on with these examples? Well, they have two things in common. In all the cases, the authorities are overstepping their God-given boundaries. They're legislating about heavenly things rather than earthly things. Now, this is where we would differ from our Anglican and Reformation friends. You see, they see a role for the state in heavenly things. Did you know, for example, that the Prime Minister still chooses the Archbishop of Canterbury, for example? It gets tricky, though, doesn't it? Is marriage a heavenly thing or an earthly thing? Who has the right to define it? Can the state not legislate about marriages? So that's getting tricky. Is sin, uh, sorry, is murder a sin or a crime? Well, it's both, isn't it? So it has something to do with the church and it has something to do with the state. It isn't always that easy to draw lines. It can be quite tricky. But what is clearer in all these cases, the second thing is that to obey their legislation would be to disobey God. And this is when we need to be clear on what God has commanded. God commanded his people to pray to him alone. Darius, who was in charge when Daniel was around, wanted people to pray to him instead. Daniel wouldn't do it. He wouldn't stop praying to his God. And so Daniel faced the force of the law. He saw the face of the monster in the jaws of the lions, but God rescued him from it. God's also commanded his people to worship him alone. Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel's friends to worship a statue instead. Daniel's friends wouldn't do it. They wouldn't bow to an idol, and so they faced the force of the law. They saw the face of the monster in the fiery furnace, and God rescued them from that. Jesus commanded his disciples to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. The ruling authorities wanted Jesus' disciples to be quiet. Peter and John wouldn't do that. And so they faced the force of the law. They were rescued then, but of course Peter went on to be crucified and John went on to be exiled to the island of Patmos. They submitted to the authorities even in their punishment there. Do you see? as the Lord Jesus had done before them. If you think about it, Jesus submitted to the earthly authorities. Even though he could have all claimed authority over them, even though he knew that his kingdom was of another world, when his disciples tried to violently stop people, the earthly authorities taking people, uh, taking him away, Jesus told them to put away their swords. Jesus submitted to a sham trial with trumped-up charges. He submitted to Roman nails and then sent his disciples into the Roman world to preach the forgiveness that he had won through his death on the cross. See, all of us are naturally rebels, aren't we? We rebel against every kind of authority. Kids rebel against their parents. Drivers rebel against temporary speed limits. You know that, yeah? Uh, Radicals rebel against the state. But really, these things are just symptoms of a bigger problem, aren't they? We we rebel against the biggest authority, the ultimate authority, God. All rebellion has a price, you see, from those things. But Jesus paid the price on the cross. He submitted so that we rebels who don't submit could be forgiven. Now, I want to make this hit the road, though. I want to show you what it's like in practice. I want to finish with an unsung hero of submission to the state. You see, we have our Daniels that we've mentioned, we've had our Shadrachs, Meshachs, Abednegoes, with their exciting stories of lions and angels and burning hot ovens. But I want to talk to you lastly about the example of Esther. So finally, more briefly, the example of Esther. In Esther, the book in the Bible, we see a model of Romans 13 in practice. And it also shows us why it's crucially important that we follow Romans 13. Esther in the Bible is shown as a model of submission. If you don't know about Esther, she was one of God's people who lived a little while after Daniel and she was also in exile like Daniel. She ends up being made queen because a previous queen, Vashti, refused to submit to the emperor. She is supposed to be her polar opposite. That's what we're supposed to see. She too sees the face of the monster. There's a man called Haman who plots to use the state to wipe out God's people. But she wins over the emperor by her submissive behaviour. You see, Haman had got a law passed by telling the king this. This is what he told the king about Esther's people, Esther 3 verse 8. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws. So there is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. What he told the king to try and get the king to wipe them out was basically these guys don't submit. They don't follow the king's laws. They don't respect them. And so really you're better off without them. He doesn't know at this point that these are Esther's people. But when he finds out, he dismisses, dismisses the charges out of hand how could this people, how could Esther's people possibly be so rebellious and unsubmissive to the king? How could they possibly, when there's Esther here, the model of submission? You see, even Daniel and Daniel's friends are a model of submission until they have to disobey. If you think about it, they, they end up in high office, don't they? But from Esther we learn a powerful lesson. Submission does not equal silence. Her submission won the ear of the emperor. And then she used her position to speak. Same with Daniel, same with his friends, same with Nehemiah, if you look that one up. Same with others like Paul, who stands trial before Felix, and eventually, we presume, before Caesar. Their submission, when they were able to, put them into a position where they could speak when they were unable to submit. So submission does not equal silence. And we need to try and act like Esther's when the state is trying to be minister, not monster. When it is trying to act for our good. But that doesn't mean we remain silent. We can exert influence on government through legitimate means. When it comes to those unexpected consequences of what the government is doing. I'm glad that we have folk from the FIEC, that's the part of the group of churches that we're in, talking to high levels of government about the Covid regulations. I don't see that as colluding with the enemy. I see that as doing what Esther did, what Daniel did, working through legitimate channels. I'm glad that there are Christians in Parliament raising the issues that we have and being able to point to Christians, not as subversives and rebels, but as good citizens who are trying to obey and trying to work towards the good of their neighbour. Now, I know this is the giant COVID elephant in the room, isn't it? Especially with the the week ahead coming. As Richard mentioned earlier, we hadn't planned it this way. But under normal circumstances, much of what we're saying isn't really that controversial, is it? But at the moment, it's splitting churches as we speak. And we still don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks. What I want to say is this. If we take this passage seriously, we need to be willing to submit where we can. We need to avoid the impression that we are awkward revolutionaries who are not interested in the good of others. That said, I don't want to be naive either. There may come a point where we have to reject what the government is saying. If they single us out as believers, if this becomes not about safety but about suppression, then yes, actually, there'll become a time when we need to not comply. On a totally different issue, if they make parts of the Bible illegal to preach, Equally, we'll need to not comply. But we do so still in submission. We still follow Romans 13. We continue to pay our taxes. We continue to do whatever good we can. We continue not to badmouth those in office, but to give them respect. And we make it clear that we disobey with a heavy heart. Not like we've been gunning for this the whole time. And if we're put in prison, we go. Not silently, but submissively. If we're fined, we pay as we're able. So if you're really keen on rebelling against the COVID restrictions, you better start saving. It's about £10,000 a week. And I'm classed as a centre manager, so I might need a loan. I just (laughs) don't know we're talking about it. But seriously, where we can, we want to be Esther's. And if we need to be, perhaps we'll need to be Daniel's. But whatever we do, we must take Romans 13 seriously. So the queen is both a monster and a minister. If you're listening, your majesty, then I say that with the utmost respect. But then Paul wrote this under Nero, didn't he? Nero, who a few years later would chop off his head. If Paul can tell them to submit to that, then we can submit to those that God has placed over us. Let's pray that God would give us the strength to do that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that in many ways the state is a gift. Father, thank you for our government. Father, thank you for those who work workers, judges and in different areas of government. Father, we pray in your mercy that our state might not become one who oppresses Christians more, but, Father, might be one that allows us our freedom. We do pray for the coming weeks, Father. We pray for the freedoms that we've enjoyed before. Uh, Father, we pray that we might be able to spend more time with one another and be able to be indoors, Father, if the weather turns bad. Father, we know these are very nitty-gritty issues, but, Father, we know that you are sovereign, even in the smaller things. So, Father, we pray that you would turn the heart of the king or the queen or the government and that, Father, we would soon be able to enjoy these freedoms, but help us to submit in the meanwhile. In Jesus' name, amen.